your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Good to see you tonight on July 3rd. We pray that you have a wonderful July 4th uh, holiday tomorrow. That, uh, tonight we just want to take a moment to get our hearts and souls recharged and prepared and ready for what God will do in our lives. Thankful for our church and we're praying tonight that God will do a great work in all of our hearts. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Actually, we're going to read it down to verse 19 tonight. Let's do this. Just about seven verses. I'm going to ask the men to start with me. We'll read the even number of verses. And ladies, if you'll read the odd number of verses, and then we get to verse 19, we'll all read that together, all right? Men all together, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Ladies, but rejoice as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, All right, man, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Ladies, but let none. Men, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but him glorify God on this behalf. Ladies, and if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Altogether, verse 19, wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Have you read this passage several times? There's several things that kind of just jump out that are blessing. Uh, you'll notice several times, in fact, the whole theme of the book of First Peter deals with suffering, trials and suffering. One of the key words in there is suffering. Uh, another, another set of words that you'll find that are blessing that I'll get to tonight is the word glory or glorify. That's a good thing. In the midst of all of this, he's talking about the kind of spirit to have when we're going through tough times. And then notice verse 17, which is pretty much the, uh, the crux of our message. Now, we're kind of revolving around that or just what the theme is. He says, for the time is come. In other words, he's saying it's, it's here. It's not something waiting for it's here. The time has come. The judgment must begin in the house of God. And so tonight I want to take that verse of Scripture this evening and help us to realize that as we pray for our country and pray for revival and we, we consider things that are unfolding in America right now, things that are very disturbing that are going on in terms of the uh, legislative process, laws are being enacted, laws are being considered, and the direction that perhaps some in a political posturing mode are, are trying to take our country, that what we're, we're, how, how does God work through all that? What does God do? I mean, we cry out to God, but where, how does revival come, and can God change that? And we're, we're going to look at that tonight to see how God works through this from the context here of 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, Father, tonight we, are, we give you glory and praise because the Bible here speaks about glorifying you. And the Bible says in Ephesians 3.21 that unto you be glory in all the church. And so, God, we realize tonight to give you glory, we must stop and pause and recognize that you are a great and mighty God, that you are the God of all creation. In fact, Peter calls you the faithful creator. And tonight, Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you make all things perfect. You make no mistakes in what you do. And we're reminded tonight that, Lord, that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere beholding the good and the evil. We're reminded tonight that, Lord, that you are a God who's almighty. We're reminded tonight that you're the Lord who is righteous. You're the Lord who is our shepherd. You're the Lord who is our banner. 
Lord, you're the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Father, we thank you that, that uh, Lord, that you're light, you're love, and that you're light. And Father, we thank you tonight that God, that you're God of mercy, but also God of justice. And tonight, we humble our hearts before you, realizing that we're needy. We pray tonight that you'll speak to our hearts, and God, I pray for a hunger in our soul. The Bible says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And tonight, Lord, we're praying for cleansing and purifying that comes from your word. The Bible says, sanctify thy people through thy truth, thy word is true. That was the prayer request of our Lord Jesus Christ for his church. We thank you tonight that, Lord, we can be cleansed by the washing of the water of, through the word. We're praying tonight that, Lord, you would cleanse us. The, Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, he said, Now you are clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. Father, this is a holy word. This is a sanctified word. This is an inspired word. It's an infallible word. Lord, it's a preserved word. And, God, tonight we, 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 we humble ourselves before this blessed book that is everlasting. The Bible says heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away away and tonight let your word be a sword lord let it be a rock let it be a fire god we pray lord it be great precious seed in our hearts and then tonight we pray it'll be honey to our soul when we're all said and done for god create a thirst and hunger in our soul that say like the psalmist did my soul thirsts and panteth after thee father thank you for these wonderful wonderful people this congregation that i get to serve and pastor the heritage baptist church thank you for many longtime members that are here and newer members that are here and god equally the same they have a passion for you a desire for god to do a great work and tonight as folks still make their way to church we're praying for tonight's service lord to be one that will be unforgettable because we made a decision to live for you or to do something that lord we've never done before would you be honored through our lives would you be glorified through us help us to be holy tonight in our hearing holy in our decisions holy god in the moving of the holy spirit and we pray for this in jesus name amen you may be seated well, tomorrow's July 4th, and we uh, know it as Independence Day. There's so much history about Independence Day that is, that is a blessing to us. Since 1776, or 243 years ago, America has had unparalleled freedom and liberty. It's described in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, also known as our Ten Amendments. I, I wish I had time to go over all of them, but I just want to read a couple, the first two amendments to you, just to refresh our memory, revive our minds as to the purposes of that, because you remember that uh, the, the colonists who got started they made their way over from Great Britain. They came here to, uh, to escape the tyranny of, of a, of a church-state government where the church and state were one. The state basically governed what happened in the church, and the church kind of dictated things to the state and wasn't a very good situation. And so there was the need for liberty and freedom as God would have it. And, of course, as they studied the Bible and there was much loss and there was pain and, and there was difficulties those early settlers had, they came up in 1776 with this wonderful Bill of Rights that has been constitutionally uh, uh, something that we must revere and hold up to. We don't revere it as the Word of God, but it, constitutionally it's, it's, it's very important for our, in terms of our operation as a country. And Amendment Number 1 says this in the Bill of Rights, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or bridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. And when you think about that, and again, I don't have time to explore, get into all that, but when you think about those words as they were crafted by the writers of 
uh, of the Bill of Rights, their concern was the tyranny of England controlling what could be said and what not could be done. They had no freedom of speech with respect to the gospel. They were censured in their words. And so our forefathers in crafting this together said, you know, the Congress shall make no law respecting and establishing religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Recently, we had some of our owners, Pastor AJ and a group, and some other groups have done this as well. They were out in, at one of our very close parks nearby and uh, just giving out gospel tracts. And our people, for the most part, are very polite. They're not rude. They give space to people. And they were told very, very sternly to leave the area uh, because they, some people felt like we were invading their privacy, whatever that meant. And we're not really sure what they meant by that. And then later on, we went back again. And uh, a park ranger said we couldn't be here and so forth. So we've gotten all the law from CLA. And it's a pretty lengthy set of law as far as what we're going we're to carry and keep with us there. But, but when you look at things like that, our freedom of speech is being affected by that. Uh, even right now, as I preach, uh, freedom of speech is being, being uh, influenced. And there's pressure on the pulpits of America in terms of what they can or cannot say. Let me say to you tonight that as the Bible declares what homosexuality is, that it's a sin, that abortion is murder, things of that nature, as we declare that, and, and a number of things like that, and many, much of the aberrated behavior that's going on in the country, those things being declared and preached from in a pulpit like this would be considered hate speech, when in fact the Bible says here, the, uh, the, the, the Bill of Rights says that that would be a freedom of expression, freedom of speech. Another thing that's said here, and I wish I had time to go into all that, but another thing said is, is Amendment Number 2, it says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. One of the Democratic candidates, who happens to be a very loud mouth, more of a talker than anything else, got up on social media yesterday or today and basically said, if I become president, what the first thing I'm going to do is put a restriction on the, on, 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 uh, on the citizens from possessing guns and, law and so forth, and I'm going to force Congress to sign this within 100 days. You know, I have a, I have a concern about that because that same person is mad about our president trying to force certain laws and using executive action on things, but they want to exert that, uh, uh, sim something similar to that against the amendments or a protected rights there. And so what I'm saying today is this. A lot has changed since the founding days of this great nation. I don't think our forefathers had anywhere the insight or the prophetical idea where this country would morph into. Perhaps they should have studied the scriptures a little bit more. Perhaps they should have studied the major prophets and the, the books of Kings and Chronicles and Judges to understand the, how, how apostasy occurs. I don't think that occurred in their mind. I don't think, I don't think uh, that was in their minds there. But we must understand today a lot has changed since the founding days of this great nation. Let me say a few things tonight as, as part of my prelude. It is not a right, this is not a righteous nation that reveres God the Bible or the church. The Bible says this, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. May I say to you tonight, this is not a Christian nation. It has been proposed that this is a Christian nation. It is not a Christian nation. It is a pagan nation. If you look at the proliferation of false religions and cults and things going on today and what's being propagated and, and the biases against Christianity, I'm going to tell you tonight, Christian friend, the Christian, the Christian today is considered the enemy of the state. The Christian is being opposed. The Christian is being biased. They're being held back against their and so this is not a righteous nation that reveres God. We are seeing frightening statistics that are being, uh, that are being released by the Pew, the Pew Research Institute that's showing an alarming increase in the number of people that are in one of two categories, that there's an increase in the number of people that do not believe in God, or there's an increase in the number of people who don't believe in anything. It's very alarming what's going on there. And may I say to you tonight, you can never talk enough about God at home to your family, and, or not talk enough about God to your children there. That's a reminder to us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God, who's all-knowing, 
going, realized if the Jews did not make the word of God prominent in their homes, they didn't put it on their walls, they didn't put it on their doors, they didn't put it on their wrists, they didn't make it prominent. He knew that it wouldn't be long before their children would go off in, in some other direction there. And so for some of the things we can trace to apostasy is that where there's less of the word of God, there's more of a likelihood that apostasy will occur. Let me say this, it is, this is not a moral nation but a nation that is embraced and is overrun by twisted, perverted, and aberrated behavior. Amen. This is not a peaceful nation, but a nation where criminals, thugs, and domestic terrorists get away with heinous crimes against others they disagree with. If you have a problem with that statement, go see what happened Sunday up in Portland, Oregon, when Antifa just terrorized the entire city, and the mayor basically told the police they couldn't do anything about it. They had, they had journalists that were there that were conservative journalists that were attacked and beaten. They were bloody. They were pummeled. All of these things, and the police did, did nothing there because their hands were tied behind their back. This is not a peaceful nation. This is not a moral nation. This is not a righteous nation. This nation has lost its sanity, its moral compass and a hate, hatefulness and has a hatefulness towards God. It is a nation where we see a frightening increase in the number of people, as I said, who do not believe in God and are going a different direction. You have any idea what's going on, go sit in a school board meeting one of these days. If you want to know what's going on, go to our universities and just see what's going on there. Go talk to people what's going on there. Hey, go to, go to where you work and just read, go read your employee handbooks to find out how things have shifted where they become more tolerant towards things in, in the face of just regardless of what you believe as a Christian. Try to give a gospel track out at, at, at your work site without getting in trouble with your employer or being reprimanded. I'm just saying today, I'm not against our country. I love our country, amen? I love America. Bless the nation, as, as, uh, as the Bible says in Psalms 33. But I'm saying tonight, we must understand that, that the nation has made its choice. The conscience and heart of the nation has made its choice and going a different way. Now, what does that all mean? Well, I, I, I'll say this. Well, I believe God will not allow any nation to get away with the many abominable sins that our nation is committing. Our passage this evening reminds us where judgment must begin. As you study the scriptures, God, God is not placing the responsibility not necessarily just on the kings and on the nation. Notice chapter 4, verse 17. God is placing responsibility upon the church. God is placing the blame upon the church because the dimmer the light, the greater the darkness. The brighter the light, the lesser the darkness. The more we get out the gospel, the less we're going to have these troubles there. Why do you say that? Because God has a prescribed formula for, for having sanity and righteousness in there. Read the book of Proverbs and it tells you things like this, where a righteous king is in place that through his very eyes he scattereth away evil. Listen, that's why we're to pray for our leaders. We're to pray that if they're not saved, that they get saved. We're to pray that they get a sense of righteousness in their heart and they not be driven by political agenda or loyalty to a party. They need to understand it's not loyalty to a party or any of that nature. What they need to understand is they have to have the heart of God and they must understand the scriptures and understanding the scriptures how they can rightly govern and lead this nation. So tonight I want you to see with me this evening what Peter said here. Peter was writing during a time where there was suffering, where there was grief, where the Christians were being persecuted and he talks about this suffering. In fact he talks about a Christian responsibility and the glory of salvation in chapters 1, 2, and 3. In chapter 4, he gets right into the crux of what he really wants to say. He's telling us in chapter 4 what we must wake up our, and open our eyes to, and that is the judgment must begin in the house of God. And we're going to define all that tonight if, if, you, if we can. Now notice several things tonight about this passage. Number one, what you notice in verse 7, Peter speaks to us about a ready precaution. In verse 7, he speaks to us about a ready precaution. Would you notice this? He says in verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Now the, the, the writers of Scripture, 
Scripture, the New Testament writers, they, they were pro- prophetic men. They were, they were prophets. They could see into the future. They had insight that perhaps people that day did not have insight of. And they all spoke about being in the end times. There was great pressure going on. Nero was on the throne. Nero was persecuting the Christians. If you're, if you're not familiar with Nero, go pick up books, Fox's Book of Martyrs and read some of the heinous things that he did. And how he, and even Peter himself knew that he writes about it in 2 Peter 1, that he knew his time, that he would die would be soon. And of course, you know anything about Peter's persecution? Peter was crucified upside down. I mean, the things that, that were done to the Christians during that time, and even the apostles who, who were persecuted were very heinous things. And so some of the things that the writers said were this. Paul, Paul was aware that these were the end times. He said in Romans 13, 11, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than we believe. Paul knew that it was end times, and that was not the only time he wrote about that. James spoke about being in the end times. Notice James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it until he receives the early and latter rain. The apostle John in 1 John was an end times preacher. He understood we were in end times. He said in 1 John 2, 28, and now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Jude, in writing his little book, a powerful book, one chapter, but powerful book. You can invite Jude up into four messages. And he talks about Enoch and how Enoch was a prophet of God. Enoch had a son that was born when he was 65 years of age. That was a wake-up call to Enoch. Enoch realized he'd wasted his first 65 years. He didn't do much for God. He was saved. He knew the Lord. He had a saved father, but he didn't do much for the Lord. When that precious baby was born, that baby by the name of Methuselah, he said he named that baby Methuselah because Methuselah meant a man of the dark. It's like if you would, a spear went through the heart of, of, of Enoch that he realized that he lived 65 years and he wanted to repent those first 65 years, but he could not. And he decided from that moment on, for the sake of his son Methuselah, that he, that he would live for God. And the Bible describes him that he walked with God, and he had this testimony that he pleased God. Well, Enoch went about as he got closer to God and walked with God. He became a prophet of Scripture. I'll just tell you this. If you get close to God, and you get closer to the Lord and walk with him through prayer and the Word of God, you can't help but want to preach the Word of God. Amen? You just got to want to get the Word out. You want people to know what's going on here. And he quotes about Enoch here in Jude 1, verses 14 to 15. And he said, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. He's talking about the apostates there. Those who are uh, apostasies when you have revealed truth, but you don't believe it and you don't accept it. And he talks about these apostates. He says, he says uh, and of Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. He said, Enoch had an insight. He had a prophetic vision about the apostasy in the end times. He said, behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. Would you notice this phrase, how he preached? To execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them all of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their heart's beasters which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You see tonight as we look at Peter, Peter was not saying anything unusual. He was not saying anything that was out of the norm. All of the, of the prophets of scripture, they were, they were men who preached about end times. They said listen, we're looking at it, we don't know we can't put our finger on when Jesus is going to come. We don't know exactly how, when the Lord's going to bring this about but we know it's going to come. And Peter said, the end is now here. He said in verse 7, the end of all things at hand. Now what's he telling us in verse 7 here? Well, number one, we need to be sober. Look again. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober. Now the word sober is a very interesting word. 
It's the Greek word sophroneo, which means to be in the right mind. Remember the story there in Mark chapter 5 about the demon-possessed man of Gadara? Remember that? And the Bible says they couldn't bind him with chains. Remember that man that he cut himself on the rocks? I mean, he did everything that represented that he was controlled by demons. And, and uh, in fact, the number of demons was in, was in the thousands. The, the name of the demon was called Legion or the demons with Legion. And uh, la- later on we read when Jesus cast those demons out, the Bible tells us the next phrase, the uh, next verse where we find this man. The Bible says he was clothed, sitting, and his right mind. The Bible, the word here sober means to be in the right mind, to be controlled, that your, your thoughts are not controlled by anything else, that there's no substances or people or fears or anxieties controlling you. It means that your mind is set in the right place, and the right place is to get your mind on the Lord. Amen? And so we look at the scriptures here, and he's saying be sober. Peter's just basically saying don't allow yourself to be under the control of anything else that will catch you off guard. Be sober with your time. Be sober with your thoughts. Be sober with your tendency. Hey, don't, don't do something that afterwards you'll regret. Don't, don't go somewhere later on that you're going to regret. Don't, don't bring embarrassment upon yourself. Don't, don't live a life that is such a life that you think it's okay to do so because everybody else is doing it. Just remind yourself, will this hurt my wife? Will this hurt my husband? Will this, will this hurt my children? Will this hurt my testimony at church? Will it hurt the testimony of Jesus Christ? Peter said here, we must, this precaution, number one, we must have, we must be sober. But notice secondly in verse, verse 7, not only must we be sober, we must be sentinels. We must be sentinels. He says, and watch under prayer. Now the concept there is a watchman. He's talking about a watchman who's standing at his post. A watchman at his post had the responsibility of having his eyes glued on the landscape. He was not supposed to let, he was not supposed to let anything come near his city. He was in charge of the city. And if he saw something coming, it was his responsibility to alert the people, to blow the trumpet, and let them know that there was something happening here. Now Peter's saying this, we need to watch, be sober and watch under prayer. Now Peter's writing this because that because burning in his heart, he never got out of his mind how he failed the Lord in that very same thing. He still remembered in his mind, it was very burning in his thought and heart, how in the Garden of Gethsemane that he went up with two other disciples with Jesus there, and they were supposed to pray, and the Bible says Jesus was just a stone's distance from them, and Jesus prayed at minimum of three times, or perhaps one hour each time from what we understand from the scriptures, and Jesus prayed, and the first time he got up and he found Peter and James and John, all of them were sleeping, and the first thing Jesus said to them, what? He says, could you not watch with me at least for one hour? He said, could you not watch me for one hour? And that Peter was just kind of sleepy and, and kind of lethargic there, and it really didn't register with him. And again, Jesus prayed a second time, and he went to sleep again, and, and Peter went to sleep again. And then Jesus saw them sleep, and he woke them up. And then they went to sleep a third time. And then later on, he would tell them, watch and pray, lest ye enter to temptation. I believe that whole thought grip Peter to the point where in verse 7 he's looking at the sufferings, he's looking at what Nero's doing to the believers, he's realizing everything Jesus taught him 30 years before was valuable things that he didn't really grasp at that moment, and he's realizing today that we not only need to be sober, we must be sentinels, we must watch under prayer. Not just watch, not just be vigilant, but be vigilant on our knees, to be vigilant in our praying, to pray for our ministries, to pray for our families, to pray for our cities, to be all-encompassing in our praying, to pray for revival, to pray for holiness, to pray Pray for godliness, pray for revival, pray for God to work, for praying that God will help us to be stirred in our spirit and our heart, that God would help us to catch ourselves when we start drifting into lukewarmness, that God would help us to catch ourselves when we're not where we should be, when our, when our preaching and teaching starts to kind of slip there and our lifestyle starts to slip. He's saying here, we must watch 
and pray. And so Peter tells us here that we must be sober and we must be vigilant. We're given here, if you would, a ready precaution. I say tonight, let's, let's, let's exercise all the precaution we can. The end is at hand right now. Judgment is coming. But notice number two in our passage this evening. We'll go down to verses 17 and 18. Notice number two, we not only see this, ready, this readiness we must have, this ready precaution, but he talks about a refiner's purifying, a refiner's purifying. And here Peter is, is well, I'm going to weave this all together for you, Peter is talking about judgment on the house of God. He's talking about the people of God going through a series of judgment. Now here's what he's going through here, is he talks about suffering, he's equating to them and understanding that the suffering they were going through was God's chastening, God's trying, and God's judgment upon the church because the church was losing its effectiveness. We'll find some of this tonight as, we, as we'll read through this. He's talking about a refiner's purifying. Now judgment when it comes from God. God uses judgment. He uses trials as we see in verse 12 because he calls it a fiery trial. God uses trials and sufferings for the purpose of purging, for the purpose of getting our attention, for the purpose of making us a better person. So notice judgment, he says in verse 17, the time has come. He says, not tomorrow, not yesterday, not five years from now. The time is come. The judgment must begin at the house of God. The pressure's here. The deviation's going on. The deviance is going on. There's a departure from the things of God. There's apostasy going on in the land. There's a departure from, from right doctrine. More false doctrine is being embraced. There's a compromise of conviction. In fact, Peter talks about a lot of these things in 2 Peter chapter 2. And so he says here in verse 17, the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Now, if tonight... <laughs> If we spent an hour talking about all the things unfolding in our country to get us depressed and discouraged, I would have to tell you by the end of all that, I would have to concur with Peter. The time has come. The judgment must begin in the house of God. So let's consider this judgment. Notice, first of all, the classifications of judgment. I want you to think with me, first of all, the classifications of judgment. And I'm not going to define all those, but I want you to think with me for a minute about these judgments because there's various judgments. There's at least seven, maybe eight different judgments that are found in the Bible. The first judgment that we're very familiar with is the great white throne judgment. Now the great white throne judgment is a judgment of all unrepentant sinners. It is at the, it is at the conclusion of the millennial period of the 1,000 year reign of Christ and all those who are, who, who, uh, all, the, all the unsaved will be brought before the Lord. Many of them will be people already have been condemned to hell but they'll stand before the Lord and they're the great white throne judgment. It'll be declared to them that their name was blotted out of the book of life and because it was blotted out of the book of life they will go into the lake of fire. Then secondly, there's the Bema seat judgment. Now, the Bema seat judgment is, is what we call the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Bema has the idea of an Olympic judge, of a, of a judge sitting way up on a chair, presiding over a race, or sitting at a chair and presiding over a wrestling match, things that they did in the Olympics at that time. And he talks about someone sitting on that, that, throne, that throne. And in here, the Bema seat judgment deals with believers. Now, beloved, let me say tonight, our sins have already been judged on the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank God tonight, our sins are already judged. If you're worried about whether or not your future sins or your sins today will send you to hell, you could lose your salvation. You're not going to lose your salvation because the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. All means past, present, and future. So your sins have been judged already. But what will be judged at the Bema seat are the works of the believer. Now God, now, God talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5.10, and the Lord talks about that in 1 Corinthians 3. We're not going to give a dissertation about that, but here's what I want to say. It is a judgment of the believer's works. It is a judgment of the believer's works. Let me tell you tonight, if you're not busy for God, get busy for God now. If the judgment's going to come on the house of God, get busy for God right now. There's the Bema Seat judgment. And then the Bible speaks about in 1 Corinthians 11, there is personal judgment we must do upon ourselves. We must examine our faith. We must examine our conscience. 1 Corinthians 11. 
11 speaks about the examination of ourselves. Listen tonight about the classification. In Romans 2.16, the Lord will judge the secrets of men. Listen to this, Hebrews 13.4, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Listen, James 5.9, you read James 5.9, sometimes we overlook this. The Bible specifically declares God stands at the door to judge Christians who are holding grudges. We read over in 1 Peter 4, 5, he says God will judge the quick and the dead. I'm saying tonight, God is a God of justice. We read over in Hebrews 10, 30, the Lord will judge his people. Judgment must begin in the house of God. Now, as I talk about that, I'll define justice and judgment in just a moment. But I want just to just to, to clarify this evening, we're looking at the judgment of God. This is present time judgment. This judgment he's talking about is not in the future. He's talking about judge, the time has come right now. The judgment must begin in the house of God. And what he's saying to you and me is, we look at this in this next point, he's, gonna, he's telling us tonight, if we're concerned about our country, if we're concerned about the spiritual decline, if we're concerned about the suffering that's going on, judgment has begun in the house of God. And we must understand why it's happening and what we're to do. Now notice we see the classification in judgment. Notice secondly, we see the cleansing from judgment. Now this is the part I want you to catch. The cleansing from judgment. Okay, now, let, let's clarify a few things here tonight. Judgment is not because God is angry and lacking in mercy. Did you understand what I'm saying tonight? Judgment is not because God is angry and, lack, is angry and lacking mercy. There's a misconception and misunderstanding about what judgment is. We must understand God is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. Now, justice is established because there are laws and there are commandments and there are ordinances. And we understand that we are to keep those laws and those commandments and ordinances. And when we break those laws and we break those ordinances and it's discovered we've broken them, there is a consequence associated with that. And so that consequence demands when we break a law, we must stand before that, ju that judge who represents the law, and he will make a determination as to, to exactly whether or not we deserve mercy or whether or not we, should, we deserve to be punished for breaking the law. God is a God of justice. Our whole penal system, our whole civil law system is based upon justice, justice for all, if you would. So justice is not because God is angry and lacking mercy. Now, in this case, judgment is because God's people have been as he talks about judgment in the house of God. Judgment was necessary or necessary for us because in this case, God, God's people had become hardened in their sins and in their disobedience. God's people crossed some lines. God's people committed some sins. We'll see some of those in just a moment there tonight. They committed some sins and they, they fell away from God. And we'll see tonight in Revelations 2 and 3, I want you to do a quick synopsis with me there tonight. But we'll see tonight that judgment, judgment even was given by God upon five of the churches there in, in, there in Asia Minor because God's people strayed from their courts and from what he wanted them to do. Now notice again verse 17. The time has come. The judgment must begin at the house of God. Let's go over here to Revelation. Would you go there with me? That's not in your notes. I purposely did not put that in your notes. I want you to go with me to Revelations 2 and 3 and we're going to scan over some things. Seven churches are mentioned here. They are, they are if you would, from a timeline, represent seven distinct church ages. But we also see they represent the characteristics of local New Testament churches. Now in each of these churches, you'll notice they're called candlesticks. You might want to write that down. They're called candlesticks. Uh, Jesus is writing to the angel of the church. He holds the pastor responsible. The angel, if you would, in this case, is the pastor. He's not an angel per se. He's the pastor. Angel means a messenger. He's the messenger of God. He's the one entrusted by that. Jesus calls them the seven stars that he holds in his right hand. Notice in verses 1 to 7 of Revelation 2, there's the church at, at, the church at Ephesus. 
And this church was a hard-working church. In fact, he describes them in, in verse 3 that they have borne, they had patience, and he said this is very, 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 very commendable. And for my namesake, has labored and has not fainted. That's a great thought. They worked, but they didn't faint. They were the hard-working. But they got to the place I would call the church there at, at Ephesus, the church that became callous. The Bible says that they left their first love. They departed from a love and a passion for Jesus Christ. And so the Lord says here, he talks about judgment upon this church. Would you notice verse 5? He says, repent therefore from whence thou art fallen and remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works and listen to what he says there or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent now here's the judgment of Jesus Christ on a church that, that has left its first love if he's given you the warning once and he's given the warning twice and he's told you you need to return back to him but your heart remains callous and cold you refuse to do so what he says to that church I will remove your influence out of the location I will remove that golden candlestick you'll no longer have any influence. You'll no longer be known as a church. You look at churches that have come and gone, churches that are no longer existent, most likely it's because they lost, they, they left their first love, and then they defected into false doctrine, and then they went into a further apostasy, and they went away from things. I mean, you just look at the history of many major denominational churches, that's what's happened with them. And so we see here Jesus is saying to this church that my judgment upon you is I'd remove the candlestick. Smyrna was a good church. He had nothing to say judgmentally about Smyrna. And then we get down to verse 12, and notice he talks about the church at Pergamon. And there at Pergamos, he talked about this church being a compromising church. Notice verse 14. In verse 13, he speaks about, about the fact they were in a very difficult location. They were even where Satan's seat was, but they held fast the name of Christ. They even had a man who took a stand for God. He was a non-compromiser, a great man of God by the name of Antipas, who was a martyr. But there later on, verse 14, he speaks about the compromise of this church. And he says, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling lock before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now, Balak, Balaam basically left them into compromise. They accepted a compromised lifestyle, and they compromised their doctrine. They became covetous. They, became, they gave themselves over to licentious practice and immorality in the church. And also on top of that, verse 15, they subscribed to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which basically meant that, they, that they, there, were, there were people in the church that were lording over the flock and lording over one another. It was not respecting pastoral leadership. It was not expecting organization of church. It was basically a group rose up that said, you're not going to tell me what to do. We're in control of the church. It may have been people in charge of the money. It may have been people that are influential in the church and they just got into place of leadership and they were in control of things I call that the diatrophy spirit that was in the church and so God was Jesus was not very pleased with this church and he talked about the judgment that he would have and notice he said in verse 16 repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and when I will fight against him with the sword of my mouth let me tell you something tonight you don't want to fight with God but I'll tell you something worse you don't want God fighting with you okay you're getting pushed back in your life. It may be because God's trying to get a hold of you that, you're, that, that, that he's fighting with you to get back in control, think things back in, back in sync there. Okay, now, then, now we go down a little further. Look at the church of Thyatira, verse 18. The church of Thyatira, again, Jesus commended every church. By the way, aren't you glad that our Savior sees something good in all of us? Aren't you glad about that tonight? I mean, he saw something good in all these churches there. And so he goes to the church of Thyatira, and he tells in verse 19 that there are some things they did right. Then he, then he drops a bomb in verses 20, 21. Now, this is pretty bad. He says, not, 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 notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed and idols. Something interesting about, about Pergamus, Pergamus 
Pergamos and, and Thyatira, where the, where the departure happened came from the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Someone came in who basically, in a wolf style, who was let, who wore sheep's clothing, came in and led the church down a wrong pathway. And they, and they turned to different doctrines there. And so you'll notice here in verse 20, uh, he, talked about, he talked about this woman Jezebel, and many people are, are not really sure if she, her name really was Jezebel, or if, she, or if that was just a description of her, that she was wicked. But the key thought you want to look at, she became, a, she became the leading speaking personality in the church. She called herself a prophetess. She taught and seduced the servants to commit fornication and eat things, sacrifice idols. Again, compromise there. And then he gave her time to repent. In verse 21, there definitely was immorality in the church there. There's terrible immorality because in two cases here and in Pergamos, he talked about fornication going on. There was, unrestrained, there was lack of restraint among the people there. And so this is God's judgment upon them. He said in verse 23, Behold, I will cast her into a bed with them and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And he says, I will kill her, her children with death. You know what he's saying there? I'm going to cut this off. He says, number one, you're going to have great tribulation because you've done that. And whatever your offspring is, and what I get the feeling of is there were people trying to disciple other people in the church with that same false doctrine. He says, I'm going to kill your children with that. Now, that's pretty harsh stuff that God's talking about here. I mean, he's not, he's not giving something illusory. He's not giving something that's being spiritualized. He's telling specifically what the judgment of God would be. Judgment must begin in the house of God. Then going on to chapter 3, the church of Sardis very quickly. The church of Sardis was a church, well, sadly, represents many churches of the 20th and 21st century. He told them, he said to them, verse 1, you have a name that thou livest, but you're dead. He says, you're dead. You're not just dying, you're dead. He says, and he talks about things that are ready to die. He says, listen, that church lost its interest. This church was going away from God. It lost its interest. It was cutting back in things. Nobody had zeal about things. They weren't getting involved. They kind of came and they filled their spot. They did their thing, but they wouldn't go the extra mile to get things done for the Lord there. So the church started to languish. And the church that was dying, if you would, it was dying in its attendance, it was dying in its preaching, it was dying in its fervor, it was dying in its enthusiasm. People came in, they just wanted to get the song service over. People came in, they didn't get, they didn't have joy about the preaching, any of that going on. And so the Lord saw that, and he said to them in verse 3, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent, if therefore thou shalt not watch I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt know what hour I will come upon thee. He says, I'm going to catch you unaware. And what he's saying by that, when, when I do come, you'll be very ashamed that you weren't ready for my coming. And then notice the Lord goes down, the last church here, the church at Laodicea. And the church at Laodicea down in verse 14 is known as the lukewarm church or the complacent church. And he said here, I know thy works, verse 15, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou art cold nor hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And here's what Jesus is saying. Here's my problem with you. I'm sick of you. You make me sick. Now, that's pretty strong. For Jesus to tell his bride that he, that he makes him sick, that's pretty bad. He said this was a lukewarm church. It was complacent. It was indifferent. It didn't get excited. didn't get on fire. didn't follow the vision of the preacher, things like that. And he said the reason why you're like that is because you became professional and you got successful. He said you're rich and increased with goods and you have need of nothing. In fact, they had, they had need of nothing. They had no need of Jesus. They said, why do we need Jesus? Why do we need prayer time? We're good. We don't need to raise more money. We're good. We don't owe any debt on anything. We don't, we don't need to, we don't need to, we don't need to launch out by faith. Let, let's just be debt free and not launch out by faith and do anything for the Lord. And so Jesus said there, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye set that thou mayest see. Now Jesus was playing upon them based on their economy there. That city was known for being, for being famous for the production of an eye salve that went around the world. This eye salve was essential for helping people get their eyesight cleared and their ability to see. 
And that was important. Now, all of us here today, you, 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 you are thankful that you can see, amen? I mean, you're thankful that you have your vision. And, you know, just the fact that you can see is a wonderful thing. And these people, even he, what he's telling them, you produce an eye salve to help people's eyes. But spiritually, you're blind to where, where you have fallen to. You are spiritually blind to the situation that you're in. And he says, look it, I'm going to help you out here. He says, I'm going to anoint your eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. He said, listen, let me clean your eyes out. Let, let me put some mud in your eyes so I can clean your eyes out. And he said in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Would you notice verse 19? Because this is what I want to draw your attention to. The Lord in realizing and telling us judgment upon his church, God's methodology of judgment on his church will many times be through the process of chastening. Now chastening is correction. It is discipline. Discipline or correction of your children. Listen, you don't spank your children out of hate and you don't spank your children because, because you're upset with them. You spank your children to correct them. You're trying to change bad behavior. You're trying to correct them. Train up a child in the way in which you go. And some of you parents have been listening to this, this junk out there on the internet and all this other stuff. Let me tell you tonight, you won't kill your child if you spank him in the right place, okay? You're not going to kill him. I promise, just look at Ben Tang. He's still alive, amen? <laughs> but chastening is necessary to correct behavior. And he said in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke. You know, be told that you make him sick, that's a rebuke. I remember one of the illustrations Dr. Getch has used several times in our church. It was when he was in his high school senior year playing football. He disobeyed his father many times. His father went out to him, that, that humble, humble farmer man. He didn't know what to expect from his dad, and size-wise, they're about the same size. But his dad, with tears coming down his eyes, he looked at John and said, John, your sins make me sick. And I think that's the same idea that the Lord has when his church is not where it needs to be. When it's cold, it's callous, it's complacent, it's compromising. As many as I love, I repent and chasten. And so we see tonight, there's a cleansing. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4, please. Leading into verse 17 is verse 12. Twice in this epistle, Peter describes the sufferings and the trials of the church as being fiery trials. Think it not strange. You know what he's saying there? When God puts a trial in your life, or he's chasing us, or he's correcting us, don't, don't make the statement, where did this come from? Why did I deserve this? He said, think it not strange, because he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. And so in verse 12, he says, Behold, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial. And Peter, led by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, purposely put an adjective to help us describe what judgment is. It's a purifying. And he had in mind there, it's something very familiar to people that day. People would go to the, to the smith's, to the place of the smith, the refiner's place, where the smith was. And they would have these huge furnaces, and they would, uh, they would watch as they would go through the process of purifying the silver and the gold. Silver, if I remember correctly, silver, silver will melt, it will go from solid to liquid at 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Gold, if I remember right, is something around maybe 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, it's a very intense heat. I remember we had our, we had our oven repaired many, many, several years ago, and, and the repairman came in, and I was talking about the self-cleaning feature there, and we were talking about it. He says, just remember one thing. Do not open that door when it's self-cleaning. And, he said, and before I could say anything, he said, because if you open that door, your face will literally melt off your head. And I said, what's the temperature on that? He says, about 700 degrees. Well, you imagine if that 700 degrees, what that would do to you, can you imagine what 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit does to to, uh, hard ore like silver or gold? And the idea that Peter had there that was very familiar to people at that time is taking a very precious metal, a very precious ore. And let's just say it's silver there. He would take the silver and he put it in a crucible. And he put that metal, or if you would, that ore into a crucible because the, the person that had it really wanted the purest form of metal they possibly could have. And so to get that way, they knew they had to put it through a refining process. And the refining process would be they put it in the crucible, and then they would put it inside this furnace that was already heated up, and he would have tongs attached, very long tongs attached, because if he got anywhere near that, he would burn himself up. He would kill himself. And so he'd extend it into there. He could feel the intensity of the flames but, and the heat, but he would extend that, that, those tongs with that crucible in it and put that metal in there. And after a short period of time, that hardcore silver would turn from solid into liquid and would become, it would become liquid form. Well, this metal silver, as it was there as it was burning hot inside there he would pull it out and immediately he would notice that embedded within that that ore were things he could not see in its ore shape things he could not see when it was when it was um, solid form and there was what they call scum or dross that would be inside there and once they put that in there and it turned into metal the metal turned into liquid the dross or the scum would float to the top this sediment or this dross the scum would be at the top there at that moment in time while the metal is still liquid form he would take a scooper and with the extension there, he would scoop that dross and that scum out. And as soon as he got the last bit out, he would let that silver settle outside, outside of that heat to, for it to go from liquid back into metal form. And there at that moment, it would have the purest form of silver that you could have. You read the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs talks about that. And Job talks about that. It's the purest form of silver, the purest form of gold after it's gone through the refiner's fire. Hey, listen, when, when, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Asa, as, as Uriah, when they were thrown into that fiery furnace, they were being tested. Let me tell you, when they looked at these men, that the flame had not hurt them. I believe, if you would, there was a picture that God wants to see. They were cast into a furnace of fire, but that whatever sin they had was burned away because God was burning away some things. And many times, God has to put us through the fiery trial. God has to put us through difficult moments because there's some things, there's some scum, there's some dross, there's some sediment deep, embedded deep inside of us we're, willing, we're not willing to make right with God about. And so God has to burn away at things. God has to melt us down, if you would, and get us to the place so the sediment and the dross gets to the top so that God in his loving way can scoop it out so that way we're purer than we were before we went into the fire. And by the way, one of the tests that is pure metal, that it, before it turns in, it goes from, when it goes from liquid to metal, before it turns into metal shape, one of the tests that a, what the metallurgist or the refiner would do, the smith would do, he would look in that crucible and if he saw the reflection of his face, he knew it was pure metal. Hey, you know what the Lord, why the Lord puts us through trials and difficulties? He wants to see him in you and me. 
He wants to know that we are as pure as pure can be. That's the only way you're going to attain holiness, brother and sister in Christ. The Lord has to put us through these things. And so notice tonight, he talks about judgment, this intense heat, in order to burn away those things. I don't have time to get into this evening because we need to keep going. But read Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 29, as the writer, the apostle Paul, speaks about judgment, the judgment of God upon believers who had went into apostasy and trampled underfoot the Son of God and did spitefulness unto the Spirit of grace. And he talked about them being spiteful to God. They'd hit the stage of this fourth degree of departure from God. And he said he had to judge them. Listen, judgment is for cleansing and for purifying. There are the classes of judgment. There's a cleansing of judgment. But go back to Revelation 3, which you notice is there's a closeness to judgment. God's whole purpose in bringing us to judgment is to draw us closer to him. And would you notice Revelation 3.20, because I want you to read this with me, please. Many times we use Revelation 3.20 to describe and speak about um, as, a, as an invitation for sinners to get saved. And that's okay, you can do that. But the context here is driving us back to the church at Laodicea. This was a church that shut Jesus out. It didn't want Jesus in his life. It's like Peter, what I'll be preaching on Sunday morning. Peter said, Lord, don't touch my feet. He said, don't just touch my feet. Don't touch my head and don't touch my hand. You know, a lot of us are untouchables. We don't want the Lord to touch us. Lord, don't touch my pocketbook. Lord, don't touch my heart. Lord, don't touch my child. Don't touch my son. Don't touch my daughter. Lord, don't touch that sin. Don't touch that pet peeve. Listen, listen tonight. God's going to touch it because he's sovereign God. And so we look at Revelation 3.20. Here's a church that was lukewarm that made Jesus sick in his stomach, and he, they left Jesus out. And instead of Jesus being inside the church service, and Jesus enjoying the church and, and having a wonderful time with them there, notice what happened. Jesus, with tears coming down his eyes, said in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door, and I knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come unto him and sup with him, and he with me. What's he saying there? You lost your fellowship. You're away from me. He says, here's how we get the fellowship back. I'm knocking at the door. Can you hear me? He says, if any man. He's saying to every church member there, if you hear my voice, Open the door, and I'll come in fellowship with you once again. This purifies because the Lord wants us to have closeness to him. I wonder tonight, are we as close to the Lord as he'd like us to be? I wonder tonight that as we look at Revelations 2 and 3, callousness and compromise, carnal living, Collapse, that's what happened at Sardis, they were collapsing. Complacency. I wonder, wonder if we see it in these churches, but I wonder, do we see it in our lives? I recognize tonight on the cusp of the 243rd anniversary of, of America that God's already decided he's going to judge his nation, but he says, before I do that, judgment must begin in the house of God. We see a ready precaution, we see a refiner's purifying, but notice quickly, if you would tonight, notice verses 8 to 16. I'm thankful God in his love to us tells us about a revived performance. Let me say this tonight. God doesn't, send, God doesn't send anybody up here to fail. Aren't you glad about that tonight? Amen. God doesn't set us up to fail. God doesn't want anybody here to fail. God wants you to succeed. And notice in verse 8, Peter talks about a revived performance. And he starts off, I like how he starts it off, he says, and above all things, above all things. 
In other words, he calls our attention, verses 8 to 16, about some things that we need to get our eyes on. These, these are very preeminent things. Above all things, priorities there. And he talks about, I'm going to categorize it tonight, three areas that we need to be revived in. Three areas of performance we need to be revived in. Notice, first of all, in verse 8 and 9, we need a revival of love. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Now, as he's doing so, as he says that, I want you to understand the context here. Because we're thinking the church setting, but actually he's taking us back to chapters 2 and chapters 3. In chapters 2, chapter 3, he talks, about, he talks about order in the body. And part of that order is the, is, the, is the matter of submission. He talks about how believers need to understand that submission is a good testimony for Jesus Christ. And he's talking to believers that were suffering. And, you know, when, you, when, you have, when you're in the fire, you're having hard times. You know, sometimes you just, if you let the flesh get in the way, you want to push back. And he said, listen, he said, beloved, he said, listen, you need to submit yourself to the government, to civil authorities. You need to submit yourself. Some of you got very hard employers, and they didn't have any labor laws at that time. And some of you were slaves, and your, your, your employers withhold his, withheld his wages from you. And he says, listen, you need to submit yourself to your employer. And then he gets over to chapter 3, and he talks about, he talks about the fact that, about submission in marriage. And he talks about how wives need to submit themselves to their husbands. And husbands, he says, likewise, husbands. He says, you need to realize that your wife is the weaker vessel. You're to give honor to her and such. She can't submit to you if you're not giving honor to her, and you're to treat her right. That means you're to lift up your your wife, you're an encourager, you're to be a blessing to her. Hey guys, don't take advantage of your wife. She's not your slave. She's not your, she's not your carpet. She's not, she's, not your, she's not your cook. She's not your maid. She's your wife. She's not a rag doll for you to shake up and hurt. She's your wife. She's your help me from God. She's the gift of God for you, gentlemen. And so notice in verse 8, he says, Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. There's so many things I can say, but number one, there must be a revival of love. If we're going to have a revived performance, there must be love. Hey, listen, they'll know we're Christians by our love. They'll know we're his disciples by our love. A lot of us need to read 1 John chapter 2 to remind ourselves about the love we need to have for the brethren. He talks about hatred there. He said, if you have hatred towards your brother, God's not in you. He said, you stumbled. I, I was telling somebody the other day, I wrote, wrote a Godmore devotion last year on this. I talked about from the book of Ezekiel about what Ezekiel called the old hatred. You know, hatred's a very interesting emotion. Hatred takes control. It morphs you into what he wants you to become. Hatred leads to wrath. Hatred leads to murder. And some of these brethren here, as he's writing to them, he says, look at I, I know what's going on with you guys. He says, you don't have that love for each other. And he says in verse 7, in verse 8, have fervent charity, agape love among yourselves. He's talking about families. He's talking about being genuine. And I don't have time to get into it, but, you know, John, Paul said this. I mean, greatest chapter in the book on love, 1 Corinthians 13. So what, I got faith to move a mountain. If I don't have love, he says, if I don't have charity, I'm nothing. He says, so what, I, I, can preach, I, can, I can preach like an angel. If I don't have love, I'm sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. 
What, what good is it that, uh, that uh, you know, we can preach loudly from the pulpit if we don't love our brethren, we don't love our church, and we don't love Jesus, and I love my wife, and I don't love my children, and I don't love my country. If I don't have love, you don't love your pastor, you don't love your church, and you don't love what God's doing here. If you don't love that, hey, you know what? We're nothing. We're nothings. We're nobody. We need a revival of love. Fervent charity, he says, will cover the multitude of sins. Love thinketh no evil. Love suffereth long. Love is kind. I say tonight as we think about a revival of love, we need to put away our grudges. We need to put away our bitterness. We need to put away our evil speaking. We need to put away our, this Nicolaitan or Dotrophy spirit. We need to put away being cliquish hiding behind our ministry, behind our circle of friends, and have fervent charity among yourselves. We need a revival of love. And number two, notice what you would, please. We need a revival of labor. Revival of labor. Verses 10 11, he says, As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Listen, the manifold grace of God is talking about the, the grace of God. There's, there's many facets to his grace and it's wonderful as it unfolds. And God's grace is so wonderful as he's, he's, he's allowed us to be stewards of gifts. And he talks about two kinds of gifts in verse 11. Do you notice that? He talks about the two gifts that are most prominent in every local New Testament church. Look up here. He's talking about speaking gifts and he's talking about serving gifts. He's not getting into all this Pentecostal nonsense there, a jab, jibber-jabbering and all that kind of stuff. He's not getting into all these other esoteric things. He's talking about speaking gifts and serving gifts. And what he's saying here is he talked about above all these things. He said we need a revival of our labor. We need a revival of speaking as it be the oracles of God. That we've been given the gift of God's word. The scriptures are holy. They're not to be abused. They're not to be misinterpreted. They're not to be taken down some rabbit trail, down some road. Hey, many pulpits are, de are desecrated because some man gets in the pulpit and preaches, thus saith that man, or thus saith his pet peeve, or thus saith the politics of the day, or whatever, some book he read there. Listen, I'm not going to spend my time up here quoting you what some author says. If I'm not quoting the word of God, I might as well close the book, close the door, and say, let's get rid of church. Why? Because he says here in verse 12, 11, if any man speak, let him speak as it be the oracles of God. Hey, listen, tonight, let's bring this down to this ability. Our speaking gift, every one of us can tell somebody about Jesus Christ. Everybody can tell somebody about how to, another person how to get saved. He says, let us speak as it be the oracles of God. Hey, listen, one of the things, God, as I read that verse, I'm really convicted about. God's going to judge me about and judge you about. Did we use our speaking gift to tell as many people as we can they need to get saved? That he talks about the serving gifts here. Look what he says in verse 11. And if any man minister, if any man serve, let him do it. Listen to this. As of the ability which God giveth. Are you serving God? Are you serving God your ability? That God in all things may be glorified. We need a revival of love. We need a revival of labor. Would you notice something else? From verse 11 down to verse 17. We need a revival of lordship. A revival of lordship. Four times, <clears throat> Peter uses the words glory or glorified 
or glorified. In verse 11, he talks about when his glory shall be revealed. In verse 14, he speaks about the spirit of glory. In verse 14, Spock speaks about on your part he is glorified. In verse 16, he says we are to glorify God. And lordship is when we live for the glory of God. That's very simply what it is. He's in control. And he uses some things to help us understand that as trials are placed in our lives, and judgments in the house of God, he says some things to us that we must seriously consider. For instance, notice in verses 12 to 16, he uses phrases like, think it not strange. Or he uses the phrase, we are partakers of Christ's sufferings, which he talks about much in this, chapter, in this book. And he says, if you be reproached for the name of Christ. And he talks about here in verse 15, he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody. Another man. Listen, what he's saying there, listen, if you're being criticized, if you're put under the microscope, if, you're, if you're, your credibility is, being, is, is, is diminishing, if, you're, if, you're, if you know, your, your credibility is going down the drain, if you're tanking, he says here, let none of you suffer as a murderer. That includes character assassination. Or a thief, you steal. Or an evildoer, just your, your thoughts are over, always on evil. It's that word, cockles. Or busybody in other men's matters. He said, look at, he says, he says don't, don't, that's not that's part of the Christian life. And he first said in verse 16, yet if any man suffers a Christian, it's one of the few times in the New Testament where Christians used. If any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Hey, lordship is, is this. Lordship is when we live for the glory of God. Lordship is when everything we say and everything we serve and everything we do is to give God the glory. Hey, don't you want to give God the glory tonight, amen? Don't you want to be honored through everything you do? Don't you want our church to be honoring before him? Don't you want to fulfill what uh, Ephesians 3.21 says unto him, be glorying the church? And that's what he's talking about there. But then he goes on by saying this here. He talks about all those things. And you notice in summation of this, lordship is when we live for the glory of God. But lordship is when his spirit controls our spirit. And would you notice some things he talked about during these moments of these seasons of trial and suffering? Would you notice? He uses phrases like, notice verse 13, but rejoice. And then he says later on in verse 13, uh, be glad also with exceeding joy. And Peter used the phrases like exceeding joy and uh, joy unspeakable in this, in, this, in this book. And then he said later on, happy are ye, in verse 14. He's talking about our spirit. He's talking about our spirit. When our spirit's messed up, that means there's more of us in control and less of him in control, Right? And so let me say this tonight, we're almost done. If our spirit is critical, we've lost our joy. If we're complaining in our spirit, we've lost our joy. We've got a grudge that we've had in our heart for a long time, we've lost our joy. If serving is about, I have to do it, or you do it to be seen, you lost your joy. If you only come to church to fulfill your leadership requirement, listen, the joy of serving is not there. If you don't enjoy preaching, you lost your joy. If you don't enjoy giving, you've lost your joy. You don't, if you are living with sin that is not forsaken, you've lost your joy. I'm just saying that I can go on and on and on tonight. He's talking about here that lordship, we, we must have a revival of the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. And so tonight we see a ready precaution. Refiners purifying. Revive performance. But he, he tells us how to, how to get through this trial. Look at verse 19. Judgment's coming. Judgment must begin in the house of God. 
So if God's going to have to judge us, how do we get through it? Well, notice in verse 19, he prescribes to us a rested patience. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. I love that verse. Let me summarize tonight. We're done. First, judgment and suffering is according to God's will. It didn't happen by accident. Did you notice that again? Let them that suffer according to the will of God. Now listen tonight. If you're going through tough times, it's God's will. It's God's will. God knows better than you and me what we need. It's God's will. But secondly, if we know it's, it's according to God's will. But second, we must commit or roll the entirety of the trial onto him in well-doing. Look what he says there. Commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing. What's he saying there, okay? Well, the word commit is a very interesting word. The word commit means to roll onto, to roll something onto somebody else. And what he's saying there is stop pushing your own boulder. Stop pushing that heavy boulder or trying to push it. Stop carrying that heavy burden on your back. God wants you to learn. One of the reasons God gives us prayer, read the book of James. God gives us trials is to teach us to pray, to draw us nearer to him. And so what he wants us to do through the, the vehicle of prayer is to roll that burden to him, to that judgment, that suffering, to give it to him. He, he says, you know, you're, you're, you feel like you're about to break. You feel like you're about to fall apart. Uh, somebody came to me the other day and said, Pastor, I, they told me a health trial they're going, and it's serious, really serious. And they told me and one other brother in church, and the person said to me the other day, he said, Pastor, he says, I'm, I'm about ready to quit. And I said, Brother, don't quit. God's testing you. God wants to make you stronger. Let God get you through this situation, whatever it may be. It's a win-win situation. By the way, whether we die or whether we live, it's still a win-win situation for us. Amen? For to me to live is Christ, die is gain. It's a win-win situation. That's what it is. And I'm just saying, now, I'm not in your shoes, and I don't know if I would fall apart like you, but I'm going to encourage you like I'd want you to encourage me. Don't quit. And that's what he's saying here. Commit the keeping of your soul to him in well-doing. He says, listen, Lord, I know you can take better care of me than I can take care of myself. That's a blessing. Amen? So commit it to him. Thirdly, we must wait on him. We commit to keeping our souls in well-doing. Read, read Psalm 37. We must wait on him. We, you know what God does? God, a lot of, all the time, we, we have trials. Trials are for the purpose of teaching us patience. Tribulation worketh patience. And then fourthly, notice the last part of verse 19. Commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing. Notice this. I love this phrase, as unto a faithful creator. Aren't you glad he's faithful? Amen. And what he's saying there is this, okay? Have faith. And God is a faithful creator. Now, he could have just not used that adjective, faithful. But this is what he's saying. As a faithful creator, what he started, he will finish. What he's saying is a faithful creator, he makes all things good. As a faithful creator, all things work together for good. As a faithful creator, he is in control. And by the way, as a faithful creator, we are the clay and he's the potter. Amen? And so tonight we see as we, judgment must begin in the house of God, but it's because the Lord is trying to teach us something that we might have a rested patience in him. As I close tonight, judgment must begin in the house of God. Peter confronted the church that he wrote to, the believers he wrote to. God confronts us many years later. Judgment means there must be a purifying. Judgment is coming. Judgment must begin in the house of God. Let's, let's just say tonight as we close, number one, there must be a ready precaution be sober. Watch under prayer. Secondly, God uses it as a refiner's purifying to purify us. There must be cleansing to lead to closeness. 
And then if you'll notice tonight, God, God uses that tonight to get us back a revival in our work for God, a revival of love, a revival of labor, a revival of lordship. And as we go through this tonight, maybe you're going through some situation now. Have a ready, just have a, just a rested patience. Just wait on God. Resolve in your heart tonight that God will see you through.